or the upcoming parsha is Shemini. Shemini means the eighth, and it's the eighth day of the inauguration celebration that we started last week. Last week we learned about seven days before the month of Nisan, so it's almost exactly a year after they left Egypt, the Exodus, and they have uh, they spent a, several months assembling, building, constructing the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Finally, it's ready, and they have a seven-day inauguration celebration. Each one of those seven days, Moshe has the status of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Every single day, he is constructing and deconstructing the Mishkan. And finally, it's the eighth day, and he's going to pass over the baton to Aaron and Aaron's children. He, last week, already poured the oil on them, the special oil of consecration. He got them dressed in their special clothing. They finished their seven-day training, and now it's when it's going to begin. And the verse, the parsha starts, it's on the eighth day. Aaron summons, Aaron is summoned by Moshe, Aaron and his sons. Moshe calls Aaron, Aaron's sons, and all the elders. And he instructs, instructs him about the, uh, the orders of the day. And they take several sacrifices. And they're going to offer these sacrifices to kickstart the new tabernacle. So Rashi points out here very importantly. So what's the what, what are the animals that they take uh, to sacrifice? It's a young bull, a young adal, a young calf, essentially, for a sin offering, and a ram as well. And then he tells the Jewish people that that's what Aaron brings. The Jewish people they bring a young goat as well. So these are all these sacrifices that are being assembled now for day eight. Rashi tells us that the reason why they had to bring a young calf, because they've had some history with calves, if you may remember, and to tell us that this calf, this sin offering of the calf, is going to atone for the other calf, the golden calf, that they unfortunately sinned with several months prior, and this is going to be a measure for measure. And this is a general theme we see again in the Torah, that whenever someone does something specific, they might treat them in a specific, very specific way, commensurate to the way they behaved. And therefore, the Jewish people sin to the golden calf, how is that going to be rectified with another calf as well? And I think, broadly speaking, it's good to remember this idea that the Jewish attitude... Uh, to when good things happen and when bad things happen, is to try to find, so to speak, God's fingerprints upon uh, the circumstances. So something really bad happens, our instinct, our inclination, is to blame circumstances. You know, well, why did this happen? Because just look at what we see in the observable sphere and say, okay, point to try to, the, try to point to the reasons why such a thing happened. And here we're told, the the general theme of the Torah is that the Almighty is behind the scenes and he is orchestrating the circumstances and that is going to be reflective of us and and their messages as well. So if something bad happens to me, I could say, oh, you know, I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't. uh," We can always kind of judge ourselves in the observable circumstances, 
but we're, we're trained in the Torah to try to look at what message is God sending me and how do I actually fix the underlying, underpinning, undergirding cause to actually rectify the problem. Talmud tells that in antiquity, people didn't even go to the doctor when they were sick because they viewed all physical illness as manifestation of spiritual illness. And therefore, they would go to the prophet. And the prophet would tell them, the reason why you have this illness, because you have this spiritual illness and it's manifest in a physical way, you fix the problem, you rectify the sin, and automatically the result will, uh, will be eliminated too. Uh, but people didn't even go to the physicians. They, 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 didn't, they didn't even view the physical realm as an independent entity. In antiquity, there was this attitude that it's all a message from God. You f- you try to glean the message and take it to heart, and that will fix the underlying problem. And that's in the negative sense. And in the positive sense, uh, there's the, the flip side. You know, when we have a success in, in, in our lives, we, of course, tend to attribute to the might of our own hand and our own genius, and we forget about God. What, where would we be without it? We wouldn't exist at all. That's the attitude the Torah is trying to inculcate to look at God as being the one behind uh, the good and the bad. How do you improve? How do you take the situation that you're in and use that to propel yourself forward by trying to internalize the message? That's the first sacrifice that we meet over here. There's a whole bunch of them. But it's interesting to always note why or what our sages pull out as to the reasons why these specific sacrifices are brought. In verse 3, we learn about the sacrifices the Jewish people bring, and amongst them is a goat. Again, a goat for a sin offering. Whenever there's a sin offering, it's coming to repent for a certain sin. So the Midrash tells us which sin are we trying to repent with the goat. And it pulls something not from Leviticus, and not from Exodus, but all the way back to Genesis, there's some sin that needs to be rectified, going all the way back to Genesis. And what's that? When Joseph's brothers decided to sell him as a slave, and then they duped their dad by taking his sweater and killing a goat in Genesis 37-31. They slaughter a goat, and they dip his sweater in the blood to make it look like they just found it and he's dead and he was savaged by some animal. And they show it to the dad and really they sold him as a slave. And therefore, because collectively the Jewish people sinned with a goat, now we have to fix it with a goat offering. That's what the Midrash tells us. And of course, it's very bizarre. Like that event happened hundreds of years prior. And somehow... The only time that it's, uh, how do we fix this problem? Oh, let's, let's, let's fix it right now. Like, this, now it's imperative for the Jewish people to fix it. Very strange timeline. The question is, why now? So I saw a magnificent answer brought down from the Meshachachma. Uh, he says that, uh, if you remember back to the story of Joseph, the brothers had a reason, there was a rationale the brothers had why Joseph, either they should have killed him or certainly should have sold him. Why? Because he, instead of speaking to them, he would tattletale. Whenever they would do something wrong, the, uh, the Joseph would go to the father and he would rat them out. 
And their argument was, if you think there's something wrong with us, come speak to us directly. And maybe we would accept your rebuke and we'll change our ways. And therefore, you shouldn't have gone to dad, to Jacob, and therefore you're guilty. That was their argument. That was their rationale. And that actually was a good argument that they had in their defense since then. However, there was one event that happened that changed that. During the episode of the Golden Calf, there was a dissenting voice by the name of Hur. If you remember, when the Jews were fighting Amalek, Moshe went on top of the mountain, and he had Aaron on one side, and Hur on the other side. They were holding up his hands, and then uh, they were successful in defeating Amalek. So what, ha- what happened to this Hur individual? So Talmud tells us that when the mob was coming over to Aaron and say, build us a golden calf, or build us a leader to replace Moshe, Hur tried to stop them, and the mob killed him. Aaron saw that, and he said, oh, this, this mob cannot be quelled, let me try to delay, and, and, and ultimately that led to the golden calf being formed. But here we see that Hur tried to rebuke them, tried to stop them, and then listened to him. So now, the argument of the Jewish people, the nation, so to speak, if you just rebuke them, they'll hearken to your rebuke, now that falls away. So now you have to pay back the previous misdeed where you sold Joseph and your argument was, your justification was, well, if he would have rebuked us, we would have listened. Now that falls away. We see someone did rebuke you, you didn't listen. So maybe, or it's in all likelihood, if Joseph did rebuke you, you also wouldn't have listened to him. So therefore you shouldn't, uh, he was justified to go to dad and you shouldn't have sold him. Pretty clever idea. They gather all the requisite sacrifices. And Moshe, in verse 6, is a very critical verse here. I think it really captures the theme of the Parsha. Moshe tells them, uh, this is the thing that Hashem has commanded you to, you, you to do. Then the glory of Hashem will appear to you. Moshe says, listen, don't overthink this. Just follow God's instructions and... Do it precisely the way he tells you to do it, and then the result will be achieved. The glory of Hashem will appear to you. This, I think, is a very important ideal uh, that is manifest in the Torah, and certainly in this Parsha. From beginning to end, you see this theme in the Parsha. We, We like to understand why we're doing things. And that's a noble desire. And that's why we try to find meaning behind mitzvos. And many mitzvos make a lot of sense to us. And some mitzvos after some instruction also make sense to us. But there's always a realm of mitzvos known as a chok, as, a, as a, just a rule and instruction that we cannot possibly wrap our head around. And here we're told, Moshe tells the, tells the people, listen, this is what Hashem instructed. You do this, you follow the orders, even if you don't understand why you're doing it, the glory of Hashem will appear to you. And a lot of times, we're very hesitant to embrace this perspective because we don't see how the dots are going to be connected. We don't see how doing this X, Y, or Z is going to result in what, you know what's desired. And that's oftentimes going to be an obstacle for us. And, uh, you know, you look at... Uh, 
prayer, for example. We pray, and to us it doesn't necessarily, we don't feel like we're talking to God, and we don't feel like we're getting the desired results. Uh, and why does that be exactly this way? Why can it be a different way? Why, why can we alter? Why can we change? I, I feel more comfortable praying myself. Well, why do I have to go to shul? That's a good argument. And you know what? Maybe, maybe in your head you're right, but the Torah says you have to pray with a minion. You pray with it. You've got to follow the instructions. Someone once likened this to you want to go to a website, right? So you want to go to CNN, comma, com, whatever, or Fox News for you. So you go to Fox News, and you don't put a dot, you put a dash com, or, or, or a comma. What's the difference between a comma and a dot? My goodness, it's so similar. But if you put it into your browser, you'll, you will not achieve the desired result, because there's a specific address, and you have to follow the exact address, and that is the only way to get to the desired result. But what's the difference? One's a comma, my goodness, one's a dot, right? One's a period. They are so similar. Why, why can it be the same? And the answer is that no, there's, sometimes there's, there's a fixed address, and that this is how you do it, and let God figure out how the connection actually works. But he's telling you, this is what you do, and this is how you'll achieve the result. And I think there's a historical example of this that really shows us, like if we could zoom out and give a grand perspective of history, we see how this actually worked. We know that the Jewish mission in life, in the world, the destiny of the Jewish people, was started by Abraham to change the world, essentially, to bring God into the world. We call that Tikkun Olam. And we're told, here's the Torah, here's the guidebook to do that. And you read the guidebook from beginning to end, and nowhere do you find any instruction to go to the pulpit and go to the microphone and go to the town square and to start broadcasting your message. In fact, the opposite is being told to us. Right? You have a community, you got to stay close to your community, don't proselytize, don't try to teach Torah to the rest of the world. And obviously those points don't those seem to be in opposition. How is it possible that our destiny is to change the world and the instruction manual to do that doesn't tell us, go do that, or at least not, it's not observable to us. We're not told to go out and teach the whole world, yet we're told that we will if we follow the Torah. We are told that we will be a light to the nation, but we're not told, go be a light to the nation. Nowhere in the instructions of achieving that result are we told to take any measures that seem to be oriented towards achieving that result. I want to zoom out here, and I want to look at the last 2,000 years of, of world history and look where we were 2,000 years ago and where we are today, and you see that 2,000 years ago, we were a, an insular idea. You know, the Jewish nation and the ideals that we espouse and the innovation of Abraham was entirely limited to the Jewish people. All the other people of the world were idolaters, were pagans. And yet, you look at the world today, and there are still idolaters and pagans out there, but generally speaking, when most people speak about the idea of God, they're referring to the Abrahamic idea of God. And we see that it's happened, even though we haven't actually done anything about it. So we just, you follow the instructions, and the result will happen. Well, how will it happen? So we see the Almighty brings us in exile throughout every nation, and that's so to speak, against our will, 
we're being forced to spread our ideas across the world. And we see the idea of these offshoot religions, of these, uh, you know, of Esau, so to speak, bringing us Christianity and, and Ishmael, bringing us Islam. And these are, so to speak, our helpers in disseminating idea. We're not the ones, the instigators behind it, but it's our influence. And that's, again, we see that the Almighty tells us we will be a light to the nation. It doesn't tell us go be a light to the nation, yet we see that it actually worked. And now the world is heavily influenced by the Jewish ideal, even though we didn't actually actively go about pursuing that. You follow the instructions, you'll achieve the desired results. Okay, so Moshe gives these instructions, and he tells them, you follow the instructions, you'll achieve the result. They bring all the sacrifices. They do the entire procedures of the sacrifices. They take the various portions, uh, elements of the animal that need to be put on the fire. Everything is exactly the way it was instructed. Follow all the laws to a T. Again, these processes have been described already earlier in Leviticus and they bring all the all four sacrifices are brought and finally in verse 22 Aaron he lifts his arms and he gives for the first time the entire people the entire assembled people the priestly blessing and verse 23 tells that Moshe and Aaron went into the tabernacle and they came out and collectively they blessed the the nation and finally at the end of verse 23 the glory of Hashem appeared to the entire people. So that that was desired in verse 6 that the glory of Hashem will appear was fulfilled after uh, all this processes done precisely to a T the way they were told to, to, to do. There's an interesting Rashi, a few interesting Rashis here. Because you look at, uh, it's after verse, after everything's done. So Aaron gives the blessing, and it's interesting that the glory of Hashem does not yet appear. They don't achieve the desired results yet. And then verse 23, Moshe and Aaron together walk in, and then they walk out. We don't know what exactly happened in the interim. And they bless the nation, and finally, after that, the glory of Hashem appears. So Rashi tells us, that after Aaron, he brought all the sacrifices and he did everything the way he was instructed, still the Shekhinah, the glory of Hashem, did not descend upon the Jewish people and he was, obviously, understandably, dejected. And Aaron said, I know that, that the Almighty is upset at me and, and therefore because of me, I'm the obstacle why the Shekhinah did not descend upon the Jewish people. So he says to Moshe, Moshe, my brother, I did as you instructed, and I went, and now I'm ashamed. I, so what happened? Moshe himself came in, and they prayed together, and finally, the Shekhinah descended upon the Jewish nation, and they left, and they said a blessing, very famous blessing, let the pleasantness of Hashem be upon us, May it be his will that the Shekhinah will be present in your handiwork. And it gives, again, Rashi gives the history. Seven days, uh, Moshe 
perform the work of assembling, disassembling the tabernacle, and for all seven days, the Shekhinah did not appear. And the, the people were on edge, and they said to Moshe, we did all this work, we invested all this Herculean efforts to finally achieve the result promised all the way in the middle of Exodus, let, that God will be amongst us. And, and we will know that he'll forgive us from the, gold, from the golden calf. And now we did everything and it doesn't show up. And finally, after this whole process and this prayer, they managed to achieve that successfully. So this is um, magnificent. It's, it's a momentous moment. And verse 24 tells us what actually happened. A fire descended from Hashem. And it consumed all the sacrifices on the Mizbeach, on the altar. And the entire nation saw, and they sang a song. They were so delighted, they just erupted in song, and they fell upon their face. So they had this duality of joy and ecstasy mixed with fear and trepidation. On one hand, they were so excited to what they saw. They saw the Shekhinah and they see this huge fire coming and consuming from the heaven, not a fire from the earth, a fire from the heaven consuming it. Obviously God is pleased with what we have done. But that, of course, resulted in joy and excitement and ecstasy and spontaneous song. But it was mirrored or was paralleled with them falling upon their faces with the recognition of the awe and the trepidation that this moment mandated. Okay, so this is it. We, we have achieved the zenith, everything that we've been planning, from Teruma to Tzavik, you see some Ayakal Bakude, Ayakar Tzav, six, seven and a half Parsha, Parshios, uh, Torah sections. Now we finally, in verse 24 of chapter 9 of Leviticus, we're here, we achieved that, and amid the ecstasy, a terrible tragedy. Let's look at, at chapter 10. Aaron had four sons, Elazar, Itamar, Nadav, and Avihu. And Nadav and Avihu, the, old, the elder sons, they were motivated, they were inspired by what they saw, and they took these pans, and they put on it a fire, and they put on it incense, and they went into the Holy of Holies, and they brought an offering of a foreign fire that God did not instruct them. And again, we know the story, a fire came out from God and consumed them, and they died before Hashem. And the prime disciples of Moshe and Aaron, the two people destined to lead the nation, the two people that are being groomed to replace Moshe and Aaron, right in the middle of this heightened ecstasy, they die tragically. And the Torah tells us that Moshe informs Aaron that he was expecting something like this. Now, why? Because he's going all the way back to Exodus. In Exodus, the verse tells us that God says, in the Mishkan, I will appear and I will become holy. And Moshe understood that God becoming holy is represented or, or is expressed by the people recognizing the severity or the seriousness of God's presence. And when everyone realizes how serious it is, that 
contributes to God's, so to speak, holiness being manifest. And Moshe tells Aaron, I thought that either you or me were going. I thought that this display of God's holiness would be so intense that the only way for it to be perceived by the people in a visceral way was if it consumed either me or you. Now I see it It took your two sons, and now I recognize that these two sons are even greater than us. That's what he tells him. And Aaron, in the face of the loss of his two sons, we're told in verse 3, Aaron was silent. So let's try to unpack this story. Everyone's trying to figure, all the commentaries are trying to figure out, why did Nadav and Avihu, why did they die? Um, Rashi tell, Rashi gives us a little bit of the, uh, of the reasons given in the Talmud. One opinion is that they, uh, they ruled a halacha without consulting Moshe. Moshe was their teacher, and therefore, if there is a question of halacha, they should have passed the question to him. Another reason is because they were drunk, or they had drunk something, some, some wine, you cannot go into the temple, and certainly not into the holy or the holy of holies, while drinking, and that's, Rashi proves that point, because the very next section is the law to not go into the temple with alcohol in your system. The Talmud tells us an interesting story as well, that Nadav and Avihu, they were once walking together, following Moshe and Aaron. And Nadav commented to Avihu, when will these old people finally die so you and I can lead the nation? And some have argued that this haughtiness, this hubris on their part, that they're trying to jump the line and become the leaders ahead of their time, that also contributed to their downfall. It's an interesting argument uh, but here we're told, Rashi tells us that Moshe said, actually, yes, they were greater than us. There's something really special about these people. And when they were arguing that they should have been the leaders of the nation, it was actually correct. They should have been. Uh, Rabbi Noah Weinberg of Asia Torah, he, he would always argue, he would always say, that their mistake was that they believed that in order to be the next leader, Moshe and Aaron had to die. And it's a mistake. We typically think that to be a great leader, you have to be nominated, you have to be appointed. You have someone to say, okay, you're the leader. The truth is that we're all leaders. We all could be leaders if we decide to do something impressive and, and take responsibility. Uh, regardless of what it is, clearly the verse indicates uh, that they brought an auth- unauthorized fire, an unauthorized sacrifice. They did something they weren't supposed to do. And I think... That uh, that dovetails really nicely with what is the theme of the parsha, and that is is that you have to follow instructions. And I'm sure they had their rationale why they thought it was appropriate, but because they deviated from the precise instructions of God, therefore they uh, died. Now Moshe eulogizes these people by saying that they were greater than you and me, and Aaron is silence. He's, he's silence. He's quiet. He doesn't, he doesn't respond. Now, when people are silent, that means that they don't have anything to say. If someone 
says something, obviously that they think there's something appropriate to say. If someone is silent, obviously think that there's nothing appropriate for them to say. But Rashi says something very, very surprising. Rashi tells us that Aaron received reward for his silence. And what's the reward? That God spoke to him alone. And in verse 8, to my knowledge, I think it's the only place in the Torah that God speaks to Aaron alone and gives him a mitzvah. I don't think it appears, uh, to my knowledge, off the top of my head, I can't think of another time that God speaks to anyone besides from Moshe to teach a Torah law. God speaks to Aaron to say over. Usually it's God speaks to Moshe to say over. And says Rashi, that is the reason why Aaron merited to be a conduit of teaching a mitzvah to the Jewish people is because of his silence. And I think that this is a good lesson to how the Torah understands the proper way to grieve. When someone has something to say, they could say something. If someone has nothing to say, if someone doesn't understand why God did something, they're recognizing the limitation of the human understanding compared to the unlimited understanding of God. God has a much larger scope of vision, and therefore God can make perfect calculations. So Aaron is conceding that Hashem understands things, and I don't, therefore I have no. there's no reason for me to say anything because I don't understand enough to say something, especially when conflicted with God's statement, so to speak. And we see the idea of silence elsewhere. Interestingly, in the Talmud, in Menachos, the Talmud tells that Moshe was able to foresee Rabbi Akiva. Moshe goes up to heaven, he sees the Almighty making these little crownlets at the top of the letters. Why are you going to, why, he asks the Almighty, why are you making these crownlets above the letters? And the Almighty points to Rabbi Akiva, 1,400 years later, who is going to deduce piles and piles of laws from every jot and tittle of a letter. That's what the Talmud tells us. And Moshe says, oh my goodness, I want to meet this person. Moshe time travels to the future, and he is so wowed by what he sees that he says to God, I want to show me his reward. And the Almighty shows his uh, terrible torture on the hands of the Romans. And Moshe is mystified by what he sees, and he tells God, Zu Torah v'zuz chara? This is Torah, and this is the reward? And what does he might tell him? Shtok, be quiet, silence. And typically, you read the, that section of Talmud, it seems like the Almighty is deflecting his question. But maybe what the Almighty is telling him, that the appropriate response to such a quizzical, a, a, a mystifying, a befuddling, a puzzling reality is to be quiet. Because there's something that the humans cannot understand, and therefore they shouldn't voice their opinions upon. It's God's calculation only. And here we see that Aaron was able to properly respond to it. He, he was able to have the sensitivity to recognize that I should be silent because I don't have what to say on this issue this is something that I should leave for God. Uh, in that merit, he was able to have uh, the special instruction from God given to him directly, not to Moshe. Now, 
the Talmud actually describes that Nadav and Aviyu, they died, that the, the fire was in the form of these ropes of fire that went into their nostrils, and it was the death of the soul, but not of the body. Very interesting. It was that their, their body was entirely intact. Someone, God forbid, gets burned, it's visible on their body. This was not at all visible on their body. It was only their soul being consumed. And that's why when they were removed, uh, Moshe uh, tells their cousins to come take them out and remove them, to go bury them. Uh, there, everything was intact. Now, in order to not dampen the joy of the day, Moshe tells Aaron and the two remaining, remaining sons to not mourn. Let the entire nation mourn because this is a loss for the nation, but you shouldn't mourn because that would uh, dull the joy of now you being inaugurated as as Kohanim for the Mishkan. Don't leave the uh, tabernacle. And then finally we get the mitzvah to not drink wine or alcohol when you go into the tabernacle. If you do, you'll die. And to make separation between what's holy and what's profane and what's pure, and what's impure. And additionally, when someone adjudicates, when someone is a judge, they should not be under the influence of alcohol. Chapter 10 concludes with the completion of the sacrifices and the consumption of them. And the rest of the parsha from chapter 11 onward, well, I guess it's the entire chapter 11, is the laws of kosher. And chapter 12 is already next week, so the following week's Parsha. Now, so we have um, all the details, essentially, most of the, the 98% of the details of kosher are now given in the rest of the Parsha. I do think that this, again, continues our theme. A lot of people are troubled by why we have all these kosher laws. It seems very arbitrary. Well, maybe in line with the idea of the Parsha is that, no, the mind tells you what to eat, what to not eat, and don't ask questions. The you won't necessarily find a rationale that you could understand to explain why we do the laws of kosher. Maybe it's just because God says to do it and just follow the instructions and you'll achieve the result. What the result is, is evident at the end of the section in verses 43 and 44. It tells us what the result is of consumption of kosher food. I want to quickly go here because it's, 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 I think a lot of people people think that the laws of kosher are complex, labyrinthian, and draconian, when in reality they're kind of very simple. You can really boil it down to a few major principles. The verse outlines what are the creatures that we can eat from the animals upon the earth, and it gives instructions, two very simple laws. If the animal's hooves are split and it rechews its cud, it is a kosher animal. So like a cow, you look at a cow, you zoom into its hooves, it is split, and it has a whole network of stomachs, the abu mazum, and all these stomachs, that's the only one I remember, I think it has four stomachs, it brings the food, and it recycles them through all these stomachs, and then it brings it back up, and it chews it again, and re- repeats the process, and that makes it part of that that's the category in which it's a, a, a kosher a kosher animal 
And the rules basically are that anything that is a derivative of a kosher animal is also allowable to eat, of course, with the exception of certain fats and blood, etc. But an animal and what comes out of a kosher animal, kosher animal and what comes out of a kosher animal is kosher. A non-kosher animal and what is derived from a non-kosher animal is not kosher either. So if you have pig milk, it's just milk, but it's not milk from a kosher animal, and therefore it is not kosher, whereas goat's milk or cow milk is kosher because they come from a kosher animal. Of course, there are more details because it has to be processed in the kosher way. So you could have cow meat on one table and cow meat on the other table. One of them's kosher, one's not kosher. One was slaughtered in the kosher way, one was slaughtered in the kosher way. There are some details with regards to produce and vegetation in Israel. That's why it's a lot easier to observe kosher laws in the United States than it is in, in, in Israel. Because in Israel, uh, there are agricultural laws that are limited to the land of Israel and don't apply elsewhere, vis-a-vis tithing, truma, and miser, and the sanshmita, seventh year, that creates a lot of complexities we don't have to deal with over here. Though I will caution, if you happen to notice on your cucumbers or peppers that it is a derivative of Israel, you might feel very Zionistic about purchasing that one specifically, but you should know, in all likelihood, it's not kosher. Because what the farmers who want to evade the kosher laws do, they ship it to Houston, Texas. Because they can't sell it in Israel. Everyone in Israel has a sensitivity to know that it has to be given, has, the, the tithing has to be done. But you send it to the United States, no one even looks at the country of origin of their produce. And even if they do, it doesn't mean anything to them, to most people. So that's what I would say as a general rule of thumb. If you see something from Israel, you should avoid it. If you see produce from Israel, Unless you know it's kosher, it probably isn't. I'm not trying to encourage people to not buy stuff from Israel. To the contrary, I want to encourage people to do what's kosher. And that's why we hire kosher agencies to do all this work for us because most of us don't slaughter cows as a hobby and don't dissect the cows and to know which parts are are kosher and which ones are not kosher. We just outsource all that to the kosher agencies. They do a great job. They're experts to do this all the time. This is what they do. The general rule for animals, land animals, has to have these two signs. The exceptions to that are the camel. The camel does chew its cud, but does not actually have split hooves. Interestingly, Talmud points out, if you actually look how a camel, when a camel relaxes, when it sits down, every camel you'll ever see takes its hoof, front hooves, and folds it under its body. It lies in a really, a really oblique way whereas its neck is always sticking out. So as the Talmud, it's the animal trying to amplify its kosher accolades. Look at my neck. I reach through my cut. I'm kosher. And it takes the things that renders it unkosher and it folds it under its body. Really interesting. Whereas a pig, you look at the way a pig lies, it sticks its its uh, hooves out. Like, look at me, I'm kosher. It's almost as if the animals are physiologically wired to try to show that they're kosher. Okay, next thing is fish. Fish has to have fins and scales. Again, this would be another great reason why uh, you would want to rely on the, on the kosher authorities because sometimes they have the salmon, and real salmon, which is kosher, and then they take to some other orange-looking uh, fish mm-hmm. and they pass it off as salmon. You wouldn't know the difference, but if it's kosher super fish, they can't do that stuff. 
Um, now, actually, interestingly, fish does not need to be slaughtered. So you could actually kill fish any way you want, and it would be kosher. And, and lastly, we get a list of birds that are kosher and non-kosher. It goes through all them uh, in verses 13 uh, through 18. Uh, general rule is that the birds of prey are the ones that are not kosher, whereas the the other birds are kosher. That's the general theme. Uh, and finally, we're giving what insects are kosher, what insects are not kosher. Additionally, these law these kosher and non kosher animals would transmit contamination with respect to entering the temple and how that contamination can be transmitted to other vessels. And finally, after all the laws of kosher, we get the reason why we should keep kosher. In verse 43 and 44, do not make your souls abominable by means of any teeming thing, any creeping thing. Do not contaminate yourself through them, lest you become contaminated through them as well. 44, for I am Hashem your God, you shall sanctify yourselves, and you be holy, for I am holy, and you should not contaminate your souls through any teeming thing that creeps on the earth. I am Hashem who elevates you to the land of, of Egypt, to be a God for you, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And this is the end, the laws of the animals, the birds, the living creatures, and the, and the fish, to know the difference between kosher and between pure and impure, between what we can eat and what we cannot eat. That's how the Parsha ends. But verse 40, 43 here really tells us something very powerful. If we consume the non-kosher animal, we consume the impure, we consume what is contaminated, we ourselves become contaminated. Uh, versus uh, verse 44, if we observe the laws of kosher, we will be holy and sanctified like God. Talmud tells us a very powerful idea that sin, in general, it affects the soul. We know the soul is pure, but the soul's purity is in flux because the activities of a person can affect the purity and impurity of their soul. That's with sin generally. Here, specifically with regards to the laws of kosher, it is, uh, it is most uh, evident, and Talmud tells us, it quotes this verse, do not sell yourself by eating these insects because you will become contaminated. And it says, do not read, become contaminated, rather read, become dull. Our soul, our uh, vital piece of pure spirituality, it is very powerful and potent, but it can become dulled, become contaminated by consumption of non-kosher food. And there's a great quote here from the Masil Sisharm, from the Ramcha Lutsato in the Way of the Upright, the Path of the Just, where he tells us what happens when someone consumes non-kosher food. I'm going to read to you here verbatim. Forbidden food infect the heart and soul of man with impurity, forcing the holiness of Hashem to depart him. And he quotes the Talmud, Our sages warn, do not sell yourselves with them, lest you become contaminated. Don't be contaminated, rather dull. Sin dulls the heart, depriving it of the true wisdom and discernment that Hashem gives the devout. Without this wisdom, a person is like a coarse animal, submerged in the physicality of this world. Forbidden foods are most harmful in this way, more than any other sin, since they enter 
the man's body and become part of his flesh. Generally speaking, a sin is an act that the soul abhors and that minimizes the soul's vitality. With regards to food, it's the most evident because that is something which you actually ingest, so it's able to contaminate and defile the soul on a more powerful level. And that, of course, is on the flip side as well. Kosher food actually is food for the soul too and is able to empower the soul, make it more vital and to undo some some of the misdeeds as well. There's a two stories here I want to f- conclude with, where the there was a renegade rabbi, the only renegade rabbi in the history of the Mishnah and the Talmud, was the teacher of Rabbi Meir. His name was Elisha uh, Benavuya. He was nicknamed Acher, the other one. A very interesting story that he has, a very tragic story as well. But the Talmud tells that when he was in utero, his mother was passing by a restaurant in an idolatrous temple, and she smelled pork being cooked. And the wafting aroma was so powerful that she went inside and partook. Talmud points to this by saying that the forbidden meat quivered within her like venom and it infected not only her, but her unborn child. And that array corrupted Acher's soul before he even started his life already. It's, it's, it's almost like you are what you eat. If you eat non-kosher food, that makes you a little bit less kosher as your soul. That's one story. But the flip side of the story is with the Hadrianic persecutions of the second century, they made the Romans made a rule that anyone who circumcises their child, the mother and child will be killed. The great Rabbi Judah the Prince was born at the time, and of course his parents circumcised him, and then the Romans found out and they demanded to inspect the child to see if the child was circumcised. So the mother carried her child all the way to Rome, and along the way, she stopped off in an inn, and she befriended a Roman mother with a new baby as well. And she told her of her plight, and they decided to swap babies. So, for a little bit of time, Rabbi Judah the prince's mother took this Roman baby and brought him with her to Rome. They inspected the baby. Obviously, the baby was uncircumcised, and... She met them on the way back, and they swapped babies back. And that child would eventually grow up to becoming the great Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. And we're told that the way the the Talmud tells it is that just like milk, non-kosher milk can contaminate kosher milk, pure milk can make someone pure. We know the backstory of this is that this Antoninus was a great friend and colleague of Rabbi Judah the Prince, their friendship fostered the environment where the Mishnah could be arranged, could be written down, and he himself, according to Jewish tradition, actually converted to Judaism. Where did he have this inspiration, this holiness, to have this close connection with the Jews and with the leader of the Jews, Rabbi Judah the Prince, and what 
where did this inspiration come to actually make a dramatic change himself and to convert to Jewry? That, says the Talmud, comes, came from the kosher food, so to speak, the kosher source, the holy source of his food that uh, really affected him and motivated him to revere the sages and eventually convert to Judaism itself. So I think the idea is that we're told the laws of kosher, but also it's very clearly outlined. Again, the, the, the parsha, the theme of the parsha is you follow the instructions, you'll achieve the result. You want to be holy, you want to be sanctified, you want to be like God, consume kosher foods, and that's uh, why, why, we can answer why in a way that placates our human brain, but really the Torah is telling us why, because God said, and that will give you the desired results.